During his inaugural address, President Biden said, today we celebrate not the triumph of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The will of the people has been heard and the will of the people has been heeded. We have learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile, and at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. And yet, here we are, a few days from the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, and America is at greater risk than it's been in modern times. The attempt by Republicans to overturn the results of the 2020 election has morphed into an ongoing and relentless strategy by them to change laws at local and state levels so an insurrection would no longer even be necessary. The Republicans will simply make stealing elections legal. People and the mainstream media tend to shy away from language that seems extreme because, in part, they think it will make them look biased. But if we don't call things what they are, we can't expect people to understand what's going on. By failing to use language accurately, we set up a situation in which describing things accurately leads people to question the extremity of the language rather than the validity of the premise. It's time to stop pulling punches. So let me be clear. What happened on January 6, 2021 was an act of domestic terrorism. And the Republican Party is a party of fascists. We are a country that has a very difficult time looking back. After the horrors of Donald's campaign, the four long years he was in office, and the tense transition, which almost ended in a coup, it's completely understandable that Americans wanted to turn the page. How could things possibly get worse, many of us thought. But things are worse, because time and time again, people with power have been allowed to get away with crimes and other egregious behaviors. This is what happens when people in a position to make a difference fail to take the threat seriously. The people we like to ridicule on the right because they're cartoonish buffoons are now mainstream Republicans with legitimate power. Donald lies, he airs his imaginary grievances, citizens threaten violence, people threaten politicians who tell the truth they don't want to hear. Republican lawmakers either ignore or embrace Donald's tired rhetoric and the violent tactics of his followers. They are one, however, in their drive to make sure fewer and fewer people can vote. While some Democrats in the House and Senate clearly understand the dangers, not enough do. And some, a couple of whom have more power than they should, either refuse to understand it or don't care. It's going to take us to make sure the lessons of the January 6th insurrection are not lost. It is going to take us to ensure the future of this country is not lost to those who hate democracy. And as with the last two elections, Democratic voters need to come out in massive numbers to overcome the many built-in disadvantages from the Electoral College to voter suppression laws and gerrymandering that keep us consistently underrepresented and on the losing end of presidential elections we would have won if every vote counted. It is going to take all of us. Today, I am, I'm kind of actually mind blown that my guests are Rachel and Alex Vindman. Um, I, I don't want to talk about them too much because I'd rather speak, speak to them, um, but as you all should know, uh, Alex Vindman 
displayed enormous courage and integrity when he testified uh, in front of Congress and uh, sort of, uh, in a way, has since then exemplified what happens in America now if you stand up for what's right, um, but also the good things that can come, the unexpected turns your life can take when uh, confronted with a situation you never imagined yourself being in. So I don't know if we would have gotten the book Here Right Matters, an American story, if Alex hadn't had to testify in front of Congress. But everybody should read it. It's a, it's a beautiful unbelievably American book, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about it. And another great thing that's happened is that we got to know Rachel Vindman as well, who has become an extremely powerful voice in the fight for our democracy. And, uh, you know, through her podcast and through um, appearances and supporting uh, candidates, uh, in, in various races has really, I mean, personally, I, I have found both of them both individually, but as, as partners to be an incredible inspiration. Uh, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. That was a lovely introduction and yeah. it's an honor for us to be with you. And I, I guess I could, I could say that, um, we probably wouldn't get here at matters in, uh, my, you know, mid forties either. It may have, may have exactly. been a couple of other decades before Exactly. The, the it's never too early or too late to write a book that can change the course of history, mm -hmm. apparently. <laughs> so, I, I mean, there are so many reasons that I want you, wanted you guys to come on, um, but it's a pretty significant week, <laughs> as you are probably aware. Uh, yeah, we're coming up on the first anniversary of our uh, insurrection. And I wanted to just start just by getting a sense from you of how, where you think, thought we might have been after a year, or, you know, are you surprised um, about the fact that nobody in power seems to have been held accountable? Are you frustrated? Did you expect this, or um, is it kind of in line with what your expectations were? I think from an intellectual standpoint, um, maybe not so surprised based on the fact that uh, the wheels of justice tend to turn slowly. Uh, if you look at the water, Watergate prosecutions, those things occurred a couple of years, you know, three years on or so. But it is extremely disappointing on a kind of a, you know, on a, on a more, uh, on a more, uh, emotional level that we don't have accountability for the organizers of the insurrection. I mean, you have the, the foot soldiers being held accountable in droves, but the people that orchestrated it, uh, no accountability to date. And that's, um, there's also concern that the window for accountability is closing. You could end up in a situation in which by after 2022, the next election, the House drops its inquiries and the uh, you no longer have a January 6th committee. You still have another couple of years for the, the um, 
attorney general to take action in Department of Justice. But even so, uh, that that could seem politically motivated. I just think the window for action is, is closing. And that's not just on the accountability front. It's also on the, on the, uh, the effort to preserve our democracy and preserve uh, uh, the an individual's right to uh, voice an opinion to, mm-hmm. through an election. And uh, I think this year is going to be particularly critical. 2022 is going to be critical to securing the right to vote. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, I just wanted yeah, to I, shift a little bit because um, what Alex just said, something that reminded me that maybe we should also be talking about um, the TOJ. Um, is yeah. Do you think that there's something going on we don't know about, or are you concerned that it's all being left up to this committee, which, as Alex pointed out, may not exist anymore come next November or this November? Right. I mean, I don't know. I'm in this area. You know, my my Twitter handle is nutsack hobbyist. I'm very much a hobbyist. Um, I, I don't I don't know, but I will tell you, just as you know, regular citizen, suburban. My wife and mom, Rachel Vindman, I'm concerned because, you know, um, I talk a lot on my podcast. I have two co-hosts where it's called the suburban women problem. And, and we, we talk a lot about, you know, sort of mom issues. And I think accountability is something that parents deal with, you know, all the time. It's just, it's a constant struggle, this idea of accountability. And part of accountability is that you really have to make the lesson match, you know, it needs to be close to when, you know, whatever happened. So the consequence has to be, you know, pretty soon afterwards. Otherwise, life goes back to normal and you kind of forget about it. And then it's a slippery slope because then people just think people, children, well, you know, think they can just get by with it the next time. So, um, it, and and they, you change the dialogue, and I see it so much about they're changing the dialogue, and they've been super successful at that. And part of the reason I think there's been so much success is because there hasn't been accountability, and it's just so frustrating to me. No, Mary, I, I got to say that I we were hoping that there would be less Vinmans in the media landscape. Uh, <laughs> you know, come come January third last year of 2021. Um, we we thought that we could move on, uh, and only one Trump, Mary, huh? and sorry. only one one Trump, Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. what we have. Less yeah. Vinmans and, right. and less uh, Trumps. Only we, the good Trumps. You know, I thought that it would be uh, we could move on to somewhat to business as usual. Uh, Trump would recede yeah. into the background. Um, we could deal with the the difficulties of the previous four years of uh, the Trump administration, uh, but it's really in a lot of ways. Uh, I think. While we don't have to face the chief executive that's corrupt, we still have all of the Trumpism, all of the uh, attacks on democracy to deal with. And if we learned anything over the past year is the fact that we need to continue. We, we, we're still in the fight. We're still here to try to do some good things. And both of us are involved in the Renew Democracy Initiative. We've got a January 6th campaign to um, follow up on what we started last year, which is campaign to talk about what democracy means to 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 an ind- each individual that's um, actually that that's really cool because i've actually been yeah. thinking about that a lot we need as as individuals we need to start reevaluating our relationship to democracy 
and what that means. And I think we don't do that because we take so much for granted. Uh, you guys just said so much that I kind yeah. of want to dig into a little bit, starting, Rachel, with you. Um, <laughs> your podcast is great. Your perspective is great. It is so important. And uh, Democrats don't do this particularly well of understanding what's going on in suburbia and, um, and, and putting things in terms that relate to people's daily lives. Um, so, I mean, not that Republicans mm-hmm. are good at it either, but they also don't have any problem lying about stuff. So um, the, the analogy of disciplining children and accountability, it's perfect because it drives me crazy. You see these powerful people do the most horrific thing, get away with it, whether it's the way they talk mm-hmm. or the way they treat other people. And the first thing I think of is like, imagine if you let your kids do that. <laughs> You know, they'd all be, well, they'd all be like Donald, I guess. Um, So it is kind (laughs) of, and like their whole um, fuck your feelings thing. It's like, well, do you Mm -hmm. want, would you want your children to live in a world like that without kindness with, um, you know, the only currency that matters is who wins or, you know, who's more of a bully. Um, So, I guess what confuses me as somebody, I actually lived in suburbia for a long time, but never really fit in there. <laughs> it's shocking. Um, but how, <laughs> how do, how does that get perceived? Uh, because it seems so obvious to me that the way that the Republican Party is now would turn off anybody, especially people with children. And yet, as mm-hmm. we know, to our chagrin, uh, despite our best efforts, Youngkin beat um, Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. Yeah. Um, You know, that was a race. I think we live in Virginia, in Northern Virginia, and, um, you know, we, I know you were very active in that as well um, and and helping out where you could, and, and so did we. And, you know, you realized when I was talking to people, to neighbors, and, you know, just, doing outreach you realize like how much the just how much traction that had they got with their misinformation and continued misinformation so whether it was critical race theory or other things that they made you know the hot button issues but again with very little pushback and the Democrats, um, you know, I was told by people, oh, we're not going to talk about critical race theory because that's not being taught in schools. Well, I mean, that's really great. But I will tell you, you know, the, the analogy that I used is like uh, when our daughter was about two or two and a half, she kept telling us there was a tiger under her bed. And we're like, there's not a tiger under your bed. But, you know, that's actually not a very helpful explanation when they think there's a tiger. So you can't just say, I mean, we had to come up with something a little bit more creative than that. And if we would just have completely ignored it and not acknowledged her fear, then we never would have slept right. another night, maybe, or it would have been a long time. So I think that that is really important. Um, that we have to acknowledge what they're saying, even if it's not true, we still have to respond to it. And you can respond to it in a way and just, you know, kind of get, just, you know, start a conversation, have a dialogue. It can be really hard. It can be 
super frustrating, but this is the moment we're in. And I think that's what we're called to do. And, and I want to say something, you know, um, backing up a little bit. So when I read the reckoning, um, you know, it, and you discuss the reckoning of the long history of racial relations, of, of things that we have buried in our country and not dealt with. We have the same situation with four years of Donald Trump as president and then a year of waiting for some, um, you know, waiting for some, yeah, some closure, some accountability. And that also is this idea of complex PTSD of, you know, just it's more because we have already been through so much trauma and it's continued. And so people, I think, look the other way. So when you look at it as dealing with your children or why people were so willing to just kind of accept it and deal with Yunkin is they had really been conditioned and, you know, uh, almost, I mean, it's a form yeah. of abuse in some way of just to say, oh, it's okay. This is the way it's going to be. It's the way it has to be. You need to ignore it and go on with your life. And it's never, you don't, don't expect better. You're never going to get better. This is all you're going to get. So Wait, and there's also the way things get normalized. And Alex, you were, you, you were talking about this earlier, that after the 2020 election, I think there was this collective sigh of relief and, okay, you know, things aren't going to be perfect, but they're going to be better. Um, and yet, I think 2021 was worse than 2020. And I live in New York, mm -hmm. so you can imagine what March and April 2020 were like here. Um, it, because, and I think in part worse because, because the expectation that they would get better, but also because... The media and the Republican Party and some Democrats really just were like, okay, that's over with now, and let's get back to normal. First of all, what is normal? And I think it, it did allow people like Yunkin to perform better than he should have. And that, that about that election, that drove me crazy. The analysis was, this is what happens in an off year. The party out of power in the White House gets, wins the gubernatorial election in Virginia. And I'm like, okay, this isn't a normal year. We, we just almost became an autocracy and the Republican party is totally cool with that. No Republican should be elected ever. So I kind of like, like, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? You know, when the media is just framing it in a way that makes it almost impossible to challenge those assumptions. You know, it's interesting. I think, um, Perspective is is very important here. Honestly, I think 2021 was a good year. After the four years of Trump, it was a good year. We had a return to some sort of normalcy. But I think you and and we share something. We share a hyper sensitivity and a hyper focus to yeah. uh, the looming threat of uh, a return of, of Trump and Trumpism. And we understand yeah. what that what, what that could mean, and what we're what we're missing, I think, over the course of the past year is the th kinds of steps that would make us feel comfortable being uh, uh, hyper aware, which is a hardening of our democracy and accountability. I think uh, you know if you if we if we plugged in those missing pieces, and they're not small pieces, they're significant pieces for for this country's future. Uh, we could take a kind of an honest assessment in spite of the uh, tragedy of uh, continued COVID. People are, are, are doing pretty well. I mean, you look around neighborhoods, 
people are doing well. The, the expenditures on the holidays is indicative of that. The extremely low unemployment, the product, uh, uh, the um, fact that wages are starting to ca- catch up with productivity. Those things are, are uh, uh, some of those gaps are starting to close. I mean, there were some benefits from um, legislation that the Biden administration passed that they really did a, a terrible job of messaging, you know, to indicate why this this previous year from a creature comfort perspective was so good. But we're missing a key thing for us that are kind of aware of the threat that's just beyond the horizon. We know it's there and uh, 2020, 20, uh, 2022 and 2024 could be, you know, not just a return to um, uh, the, a trend towards autocracy, but really kind of some major steps. And that's just on the domestic front. I mean, on the international front, uh, our enemies are taking advantage of a perceived weakness. I think January 6th last year, if it didn't occur, if Trump hadn't launched an insurrection last year, we probably would not be facing a a, a massive crisis yeah. in Europe where, uh, where, where Vladimir Putin sees an opportunity to launch the largest military offensive in Europe since World War II. I mean, this is going to be in a, ma- a massive scale with millions of, uh, of displaced p- people, thousands dead. And we're seeing that unfold because of the perceived weakness right, in the also, United States. Right, and, and because and now, um, of what Donald did with uh, with Ukraine a couple of years ago, which you know very well. Yeah. And I, I also think that, um, well, there are all sorts of things that could have could have gone differently, but definitely if the insurrection hadn't happened, if Donald had, had been uh, convicted of, for one, at least one of his impeachments, um, I don't think the fact that he endorsed Orban would have mattered either, but here we are um, because... I keep thinking that part of the problem is that there people are asking the wrong questions. Like Rachel, when I hear is Donald going to run, I'm like, are you kidding me? That's not the question. Why is he being yeah. why is he still in a position even to consider such a thing, right? Yes. Mhm. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we're just reliving, we're continuing to relive this. Why why is this even a possibility? It shouldn't be a possibility. It shouldn't be something, again, I think that you're right. It's clearly not an mm-hmm. uh, economic issue. No. It's not an economic issue no. that's driving the grievance and, the, and driving you know, 74 no. million people to vote for him. And I still, I strongly suspect that he lost tens of millions of people with January 6th, but still he's a viable yep. uh, candidate uh, and a viable political leader for large swaths of the, the Republican Party. But there's something else that's not being addressed. And it clearly the, this uh, Biden administration is not taking it. They made some significant strides in making life better for people. Uh, Millions of Americans, but these fundamental issues where white Americans—it's not just white Americans, but uh, 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 middle Americans feel like they're left out of, um, or that they're the going future, to be, or they're going to be left out of the future, or that the lives of their children are not going to be as as prosperous because competition is just increasing. Uh, I, you know, it's, yeah. it's a scarcity of resources. And uh, it's going to be a fierce competition for those uh, resources, whether that's education, whether that's good jobs. And I think people are just getting left behind. And I don't think we're we we have that creative thinking about where to take this country and how to make sure we under we we start to resolve those underlying conditions that allow a uh, populist 
uh, wannabe authoritarian like Donald Trump I, comes I don't know. Power. I think um, the original six point something trillion build back better plan w- was designed to address a lot of those structural uh, inequalities. Um, and yet in a 50-50, well, I don't know, is it really a 50-50 Senate with uh, Manchin and cinema? <laughs> it doesn't yeah, it seem, doesn't like, seem it like it is anymore. I mean, you know, in, in, in only, you know, I guess yeah. uh, in name only, as they would um, say, as they would say, yeah, uh, but not. No, I, I mean, I, you know, Alex and I have maybe different views on this in, in some ways. I mean, he's very much a foreign policy. <laughs> we disagree. Well, you're right. Exactly. Yes, that's true. But you know, I I talk to regular people. And, so what are you suggesting? You know, um, not not that he doesn't. <laughs> You know, I guess because this is kind of with with my podcast and with the work that I do, it's more I don't uh-huh. discuss foreign policy with people um, like he does. So I think that's just uh, and certainly finishing his doctorate right. and working on that. Uh, it's more of a, a different uh-huh. different thing that we spend our time in every day. But, you know, the, the policies of Build Back Better were, ex- you know, they pulled very well and with with all. Yeah. With all kinds of people. And yet we can't get it passed. And. I think it's it's continues to be a problem. Look at the Republicans who spoke out after January 6th, even Elaine Chao, people who, um, you know, were appalled and just um, they were reaching out. They were trying to see if they could, you know, uh, implement the 25th Amendment. They were looking at all these things. They were they were upset but then again, the further you get from it, uh, they just, you know, they're so afraid to speak out against Donald Trump. And I don't understand this because the three of us right. are not afraid. I mean, you know, because we we have said it and said it and said it. And, and so I cannot relate to that at all. But I do think if, they're, if they would just speak out, I really do think it would give people permission to even see... Or to, to recognize, I mean, to, you know, who he really is. And I think there are so many people that want that permission. Well, he's really effective at, like, you know, running a, a, a mm-hmm. mafia-like organization where you, you just need right. to intimidate a small number of people. Mm-hmm. You know better than me, but it's just, you know, from the outsider looking in, it seems like he's really good at uh, intimidating folks and, and, and not letting, uh, you know, a, a, knocking down anybody that speaks out against them. Uh, intimidating anybody else it, from stepping forward. And there are a lot of people, regular people, who if there were some accountability, I think yeah. it would change their minds. I do think it's hard without accountability. People right. are starting to wonder, well, I mean, it's been happening for there. 50 years. And, and, <laughs> so and, I think people do, yeah. who, you yeah. know, certainly outside of New York, think, well, I mean, how bad could it be? He's such a brilliant, successful businessman, yeah, you know, uh, because the media <laughs> has done such a good job of... Um, also not holding him accountable. So, it's incredible. you know, I've been, I've been talking to friends about how information is siloed in this country and how dangerous mm-hmm. that is, especially when the mainstream media seems incapable of using language accurately or still thinks that both sides means no matter if you're lying or telling the truth, you should get equal time and, and not be, and get no pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why I think televising these hearings is so crucially important because maybe if, I mean, I, I honestly, and 
I, I do. I kind of want to talk to you about the, the uh, evolution of the Republican Party, too, because it is a little mystifying. Up until four years ago, I had friends, good friends who were Republicans. And uh, like it's increasingly difficult, if not impossible. Um, but not not elected Republicans, certainly, with, with the exception of two people, they've pretty much made it clear that there is no bottom. And there's nothing they won't put up with if they feel mm-hmm. like they're going to stay in power. Um, however, there are, as you mentioned, a lot of other people who are connected, who uh, do have influence. And I think if, if the things that I believe we're, we're going to hear are televised, um, th- that might be a turning point, do you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, people tell you, they tell you that all the time, though. They tell, they tell, I mean, even Republicans tell people all the time, like how compelling his testimony was and how it changed their minds and how it, they, they thought about everything differently because he laid it out for them. So I think when you have actual experts who can give testimony, eyewitnesses, people who were there and understood it. It's extremely compelling and it can very much change people's mind. I I agree with you 100%. I think the hearings should be testified. I think that's true to a certain extent, but there are plenty of people that are not going to watch it or not be persuaded. And almost certainly Fox mm-hmm. News is not going to cover it. And that means the people that are, you know, that, that are uh, programmed with a particular kind of a data stream are, are not going to get anything to the contrary. I think really the only thing that might ultimately start shaking some of this um, would be uh, prosecution for for uh, criminal charges or something of that nature. That might have an impact, and even then uh, it might be perceived as persecution. Yeah, it will be uh, I by think, some, for yeah, sure. It's unclear but- to me. Yeah. Yeah. Not for everybody. And we don't need to convince all of them. In fact, I, I've gotten to the point where I, there is a no. certain a significant percentage of the people on that side of things. I don't even I, I'm not interested in having a conversation with them because, you know, why I'm not going to waste my time talking to neo-Nazis and skinheads and, um, you know, the, the people who thought Charlottesville was a great thing. So uh, but there are other mm-hmm. people who and I don't think it, it's not the Fox watchers or the uh, OAN watchers, because I just saw some a poll, and apparently 68% of Republicans think that the 2020 election was illegitimate. Uh, 86% of people who watch Fox and something like 90, 97% of people who watch uh, Newsmax and OAN. So that's sort of what we're up against. But then there are people who just don't pay attention either because they're not interested because we have failed to make civics relevant to their lives or teaching civics relevant to their lives um, or relevant, I should say, um, or people who are just too busy because they have to work three jobs to support their families. Uh, So I do think the more we hear, the better. Um, But then I get back to, uh, Alex, you were saying this at the beginning, how uh, justice time and political time are very different. Like there's no, the, the judicial time, justice time, there's really no clock. You, you, it's over when you have all of the information and you have an airtight case or you have your evidence, what have you. Whereas political time, we have 11 months here, not, not even. Um, so 
that creates a level of frustration because then we see Republicans at the state level just changing the game, right? Just getting, putting, pushing through these voter okay. suppression bills so that it doesn't matter how many people we convince because they only need their base, right? Um, sure. Does that worry you as much as it worries me? It, it does worry me. Um, I, it, part, part of the, my my problem is I can't wrap my head around how some of the elites think. I mean, I've got a better idea of how like Russian leadership and Russian military think than I do of some of our own elites, and that's on both sides of the aisle. Like, I don't understand the calculus from a Rupert Murdoch uh, that is tearing down a democracy that makes him more vulnerable. I mean, because what happens in a, in a situation where uh, after four more years of Trump, there are politi- political persecutions of, of the news media, uh, and it's on the whim of the, of the leader, and he's the, he's the target because, you know, whatever, he crossed. Uh, uh, so that doesn't seem to be uh, – that's not a self-serving enterprise to um, to really harm the, the uh, institution – uh, harm your fa- own family's interest, but what about the the Democrats? At least large portions of the the uh, le- uh, leading Democrats that are not prepared to t- make some hard decisions to preserve the democracy. And I'm not talking about from you know prosecution on the accountability uh, and accountability front, but what about legislating um, the protection <laughs> of voters' rights or uh, dispensing with with a filibuster? That uh, in, unfortunately has a very uh, colorful history in general, often used to suppress uh, progressive uh, civil rights oriented mm-hmm. legislation historically, and, and dispensing with that to protect uh, the democracy. Uh, I, I do that. That's the part that's that's missing for me. Mm-hmm. And even if you do have uh, a couple of senators for whatever reason, whether they're just you know hauling in uh, enormous. Uh, donations from Koch brothers or whoever the case might be, you still, the, the president still has the bully pulpit and he could put an enormous amount of pressure on these folks and, uh, you know, say, this is the issue. This is the one issue that uh, um, is non-negotiable. And I don't see that kind of urgency also from, from the mainstream uh, democratic party also. So th- that's the part that I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around. We're not in normal times. We did not. This is not Obama 2.0. And I get super, super frustrated with that because you look, I mean, it's a lot of the same people. It's a lot of the same people who left and they went and did other things for four years and they were loyal to President Biden and their trusted aides. But... I think it would be good to shake it up a little bit with some of these people to to have people from the real world and say, like, we got to get this done. We do not have unlimited amounts of time. We have to save democracy and we have to work hard. And I understand the idea of wanting to have people that, you know, known quantities and people that are loyal to you and, and trusted advisors. I mean, that's all well and good. But. I think we have to dispense with this notion that this is business as usual because it's not. We have to be mercenary. We cannot let our enemies, uh, our adversaries, um, you know, have any foothold um, get to think that we're weak in any way. So that continues to have to be dealt with. But mostly what we have to do is get our house in order. And that means making sure that votes count for everyone and stop pretending that 
Senator's Mansion and Cinema are ever going to come around because that's not going to happen. And it's just fanciful thinking, um, you know, that to think that that would ever be the case. And I, it's a bad strategy because if that is your only strategy, you're relying on someone else. I mean, we need to not rely on other people. We need to rely on ourselves. And at this point, ourselves means the Democrats. And how can we make this work yep. without these people? What can we do? And I think the only thing to do is to get rid of the filibuster. I know that's unpalatable to people, but again, this is the reality of where we are. And, and, no amount. We've tried, and we've tried other ways, but it's 2022. We've got to get it done, and that means just figuring out how to do it on our own and stop thinking anyone's going to be our savior. The institutions aren't going to save us if the institutions aren't hardened. Nothing is going to save us but ourselves, and that's what we have to work on now, and stop expecting someone to come in and be the savior, not Joe Biden, not these senators, no one else, only us. And that means, and that's the work that Alex and I do. I mean, we, we would love to not be doing it. We were gave ourselves a deadline of January 31st to decide what we are going to do. Are we going to move? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? But we can't do that right now because we are so focused on, you know, I told him just this morning, when I think of what my grandparents, my grandfather plowed a field until three o'clock in the morning the night before he reported to boot camp um, after he was drafted in World War II. And my grandmother worked in a munitions plant and, you know, she stayed home and, and tried to earn money and they got married after the war. But um, the democracy that they and their generation created, it could all be gone for our almost 11-year-old daughter Everything that they did, I mean, just the best of America and those, you know, the best of what they sacrificed could be gone if we don't work hard. And that's what we have to do until, you know, our short term goal is obviously the midterms. I mean, it's till November. Everything that I do, everything that I devote that's not to raising our daughter and, um, and you know, making sure that she has what she needs is my time is devoted to working towards democracy in some way and hardening this. And yeah, and first savior. of all, I, I forgot it was 2022 because I haven't written a check yet, so it hasn't sunk in. It's terrifying. Um, <laughs> but I, I could not agree more with everything both of you just said. And Alex, obviously, you have the perspective of a national security professional who, who is seeing this um, in a, a way that, that may be terrifying. Because you really understand what's going on. And Rachel and I are seeing it from, I mean, I consider myself a total layperson here. I have no special knowledge of anything. And yet we see it too. So how mm -hmm. difficult is it? Somebody who's been, how Manchin, Joe Manchin has been in the Senate since the Pleistocene era. How is it that he doesn't understand that the filibuster is not in the Constitution um, that it's not some sacred thing, holy thing that needs to be protected. It's a tactic that, as you pointed out, Alex was often used uh, to suppress civil rights legislation. Um, I sometimes think that, you know, this is absolutely true with the Republicans. The Republicans do not represent their constituents' best interests, but a lot of Democrats don't either. And I, I've often thought the thing to do with Mansion is Cinema is just buy them off. They're being bought off anyway. So the DNC should just shoot the lock off its mm -hmm. wallet and, and up the ante, say, okay, 
you want money? Here's, here's more money than they're giving you to screw over the American people. So here's a bunch of money to, to help the American mm-hmm. people. I don't, well, that's an interesting why not? idea. I mean, other than that, the other thing, somebody, I yeah. don't know who came up with this brilliant idea. They should be forced to wear, ju- your <laughs> oh, ouch. Um, <laughs> but for good, for good. Um, <laughs> The other thing is to force them to wear like NASCAR jackets where they have to wear patches with all of the people who (laughs) buy them. I wish I had come up with that idea. I didn't. Mm -hmm. So credit to whomever, but it should also have the amount of money they get Mm -hmm. from, from uh, everybody. But (laughs) it is, um, it's hard not to, it's hard not to be depressed. Uh, I have a 20 year old daughter and um, I think about what our kids, what we've has been taken away from them, um, what we're leaving them to face, and it is amazing to me. Like, don't Republicans have children too? <laughs> that it just seems not to be of concern, whether it's COVID or the climate crisis or pollution. Um, I, you know, I don't, I. I don't uh, know or care about your political trajectory, but I am curious, especially, uh, Alex, from your perspective as somebody who worked in the government for a really long time and served your country for a really long time, are things are things um, on the same trajectory? It's just that you expected they would be. Um, it's just accelerating because Donald, you know, lit the fuse or... Has there been a real shift? And I ask partially because I was, uh, I don't want to say that I was surprised, but I was shocked at how many people who um, tried to overturn our government were military or former military. Yeah, I think... uh I think this is a long-term trend, you know, a decades-long trend, frankly, longer than than Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is a symptom of where we are yeah. as a country, which is which is interesting, and it's um, in certain ways co- conflicts with my my own feel for what what this country is and how this country is different and exceptional, um, because frankly, the, the the majority of the people are. The vast majority of people are good, uh, you know, community oriented, but there are way too many people that are being left behind or feel like they're being left behind. And uh, and this is a, a trend that probably started with kind of the post-industrial age and the shift offshoring of jobs and uh, closing down of uh, the industrial base. And that might be, you know, that the natural evolution of our economy. Uh, but government also has a role, a role in ed- re-educating and retooling the population and the workforce for the 21st century to keep us, uh, you know, at the at the um, tip of the sphere of innovation. And I think that's, you know, we we've fallen short there. In terms of uh, the the trajectory of the country, I tend to be of of two minds. I, I certainly think that there are a lot of uh, dangers ahead. And I do my best to talk about them and explain to to people what it is I'm seeing. But I also think that uh, this country has every capacity to pull itself back from the brink. 
Uh, there's a kind of a famous quote, uh, Churchill quote about like, you know, America will do the right thing after it tries everything else. And we're basically have kind of expended everything else. <laughs> we're doing else. a really good job so of, we're, of that. We're on the we? cusp of doing it. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're on the cusp of doing the right thing. Um, and then with regards to uh, your comment on, on you know, the, the people that participated in insurrection, it actually doesn't surprise me that much that mil- there were, you know, a disproportionate number of military. Now, when we say, you know, it's it's only mm-hmm. still 5 or 10%, but the military amounts to like less than 1%. Yes. Yeah. Half a percent of American society. And the reason that you have such a higher number of folks that participate is that they've been radicalized. And who would be more willing to, you know, put the put some skin in the game and defend this nation than the people that have spent a career or years protecting this nation, you know, in the military. The problem is that, you know, those people are willing, if I'm willing to go out on the streets to protect the country, they're willing to go out on the streets to protect the country. What's driving us are, you know, different perspectives. And those folks have unfortunately been radicalized. So that's something that, you know, um, again, there's a role for government to identify how that process is taking place. Uh, What uh, internal and external actors populist within the United States, as well as uh, there's this this conservative movement that's being driven by Russia that helped um, move people in this direction. Also, government has a role in kind of rooting that out and and and, and stopping it, as well as uh, providing better information. I think in the historically there was a U.S. Uh, information agency that di- uh, di- directed media to give equal share to. Uh, the the uh, two principal parties, the, the Democrats and the Republicans. How much better would it be if Fox was obligated to to share airtime uh, or uh, offer airtime to Democrats as as well as uh, have their mouthpieces on on, on the uh, Republican side? So I think there are some things that can be done, and that those does these these are not unprecedented. They're part of the historical pattern. Uh, but we dispense with these, these some of these deregul when we deregulated in the in the Reagan area, we deregulated to uh, mm-hmm. to our detriment and set the conditions for the um, Great Recession and set the conditions for uh, you know the polarized landscape that we have today for people being left behind. A whole yeah, bunch of different things. Yeah, the consolidation of, of media and have you know we have things like Sinclair Broadcasting, which has basically taken over local news, and you know local anchors are forced mm-hmm. to read scripts now. It's it is all uh, quite troubling because the the fairness doctrine was there for a reason. <laughs> so, but these things don't. I mean, they change. And they change, but the results of them, you know, it takes a long time for the yeah. chickens to come home to roost. So people don't see, like, the the correlation because, I mean, when you're talking 30, 40 right. years of something um, and and see how long it takes, then it, it's hard for us to to make that, that connection. But that's absolutely where it started. And, it, you know, when you're... I applaud the mainstream media, um, I used air quotes, but I mean the, the mainstream media, and they're, they're wanting to present another side, but... That's only half the mainstream media, the yeah, other half yeah. of it. Well, Yeah, okay. But then, you know, like, so recently, um, I tweeted about it, uh, CNN hired mm-hmm. Alyssa Farah as uh, a political commentator. That's great. 
she's left the Trump when she left the Trump administration, she saw the lights, she renounced them. But she never renounced the things that she said about my husband when she was um, lies. Mm -hmm. I mean, she spread lies, lies that those lies actually put our lives in danger. And she never renounced or apologized for saying those things or say, you know, said that, yes, I was forced to say them and that was untrue. And, you know, I don't need an apology, but maybe just a recognition that it was not true and the danger in that. But then for someone like her to be hired is a real problem. I mean, this is like, you know, I understand the problem with Eric Santorum and, and I had, you know, I didn't love him being on there, but I mean, look, I mean, if he lied, he lied as a politician, not as a spokesperson to just propagate mm-hmm. lies. And that's what happened in the Trump administration and anyone who worked in that administration as a spokesperson. I mean, I think that's just automatically disqualifying to be a commentator. And so we have to be very careful about these people that we're legitimizing and we're giving a voice to them. Um, in an effort to, you know, quote unquote, both sides it, um, because some people just have lost all credibility and so be it. I mean, good luck to you. I hope you get a job. I don't want you to be homeless on the streets. I'm sure you can find something to do, but continue to be a part of this discussion. I think you disqualify. Yeah. And that's, that that. seems to have become a Republican strategy too. Um, two related things. One, um, I wish I could remember where I read this, but it was such a good point. There is no admitting your mistakes anymore on the right. And I, I blame Donald for that in part, because if you never admit you were wrong, then you can legitimize the lie you told or the the uh, inaccurate facts you you uh, spoke about. So it, it, it actually strengthens the original thing mm-hmm. you said, which was a lie. <laughs> Um, and then they can point to the mainstream media, which does retract, typically should anyway, and does often, um, right. as being weak or, you know, PC or whatever they say, woke, I guess is the stupid term uh, du jour. Yes, yes, woke. Um, That's but that. it's also about, there are plenty of other people who could have, who I'm sure were qualified for that job, just as there were plenty of people. Mm-hmm other than Brett Kavanaugh, who were qualified for that job. But it's almost (laughs) as if they're saying, Mm -hmm. we are going to present you with the worst possible person who is going to make you the angriest. Because, you know, and they Mm -hmm. did this with Donald, you know, the worst of us is better than the best of you. And I think that was their counter to President Obama. And it just, it seems to be spreading. You're exactly right. This woman, yeah, sure, have a job, but she should not have a job in which she's able to influence opinion anymore because she has disqualified herself. Yeah, and I learned that a lot, I think, you know, from from your first book about this idea of never apologizing, of never recognizing it, of never admitting your mistakes. And now, again, I think that one of the, things that President Biden, if I can criticize him, one of the things I think he's gotten most wrong yeah. is sort of gauging Why not? where the American yeah. public is on this and how Trump changed, how Donald Trump changed our sort of the way we look at these issues. Um, you know, it's, it's not, so it was just such a heightened, you know, everything was at a 15 all the time. And we're just not going to go back to normal. It's going to take time. And that's why 
you know, the criticism of wanting President Biden to speak more, to do more, because people got used to it. And you can't just undo it overnight, because even the people who support President Biden, that's kind of what they expect. So you can bring it down, but you got to sort of bring it down slowly. You can't just go from, you know, there to zero, because it kind of mm-hmm. confuses people. And and the people who aren't doing it every day, then to them, um, it, it allows other people to get in there and like influence, you know, the narrative and talk, you know, so, so then they're, they're hearing of like, oh, well, he's not talking because he's senile or, you know, whatever right. the case may be. But I mean, you, you can't have that dictate everything you do, but I think it still needs to be from a PR and comms perspective, it needs to be addressed. And I don't think it has been, again, it was just this idea of like, Oh, great. Now we elected President Biden. We're going to return to normal. Everything's going to be fine. It's all going to be good. And to be fair, January 6th happened, which completely changed everything. So um, that that was a big piece of this. It, and, it did, it did yeah. change everything. But Alex, it, it had already been happening in other ways by Donald didn't concede. And then he's spreading the big lie. And then mm-hmm. they don't cooperate with the transition, putting the lives of millions of Americans at risk because of COVID, which policy was totally dropped after the election or after the election was called and Donald lost so badly and humiliatingly, um, which, you know, we need to say because it's true. He lost so badly. Um, but uh, it, it was sad. So, what a loser. Uh, there's never been a there's never. never been a loss like it. Never. And there <laughs> never will be again. After two impeachments. Yes. I mean, you know, it's. But. But. <laughs> I don't think I don't think Fred Trump would be surprised uh, by that. Though, not right? not at all. He knows exactly what he did. But it sort of reminds me of the Republican Party. You know, they keep creating these monsters like the Tea Party or Donald, and then they mm. think they can control them. And next thing you know, the party yeah, has been yeah. taken over by them. So how do we stop that? Well, Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. it's a it's it becomes. So there are members of my family, even people who were at our wedding, who it's easier for them to believe that Alex was some sort of double agent or a spy, that I was unaware of it or am somehow complicit, because it took me a long time to understand this. But why is because in their community, small communities, um, everyone thinks the same thing and is pretty much lockstep. So it's sort of easier to believe that about us than to face an existential crisis of, oh my gosh, everything that I've built my, my life on, my community on is, is maybe not true. And that's a much bigger thing that they would have to stop and examine. So it's easier to throw, you know, me under the bus or Alex Mm -hmm. or, you know, just in their mind. I mean, not doing anything cruel, but it's easier to do that. And I think we have millions of people across the country who are in that same place, not on a personal level, but that they, it's easier to believe these things than it is to stop and think that they could have been wrong. And I mean, I know my husband will say it's, it's easy for me to admit that I was wrong. Right. Yes. But yeah, yeah, all the time. But you know, I, I for a lot of people, I, yeah, for a lot of people, I hear it's I, very right? hard. It's so weird. Um, I, I, who are these? Yeah, people who think it's yeah, hard. very strange. I, yeah, I'm. I think it's my my philosophy is never apologize and never concede in contact <laughs> in the heat of the fight. 
he's not. Afterwards. He's not lying. This is all true. Uh, but but it is it is hard, and I think in somehow in reaching people, I am not good at this, Mary. Um, but you know, Alex is really good at this. He would never say it, but just having compassion for people, having yeah. grace for people. Um, just talking to people. I mean, I'm not going to lie. We went out for a walk, huge snow day here. We went out for a walk and there were some people out shoveling their snow. And I was like, oh yeah, that house had a young consign. And, um, but I made small talk and I just said, okay. You know, I just said something and they said something and we had like a short conversation but I'm like, I'm not going to be that person that doesn't talk to someone because they had a campaign sign for someone that I didn't support. Like, yeah. stop it. But sometimes you really, I have to really force myself to be like that, to to just off, like, we're still, we live in yeah. the same neighborhood. My God, we're still human beings. It's really hard, though. It's, it's so really hard. hard. And it depends on the sign, though. Um <laughs> No, it does. This was just a, you know, a young consign. I mean, you know, and I, and I, they, I didn't ever talk mm-hmm. to them about why. I mean, I've talked to them just a yeah. few times since we lived here. And maybe they had their reasons. And, you know, I, I, there was there was a lot going on. I mean, I think we can see, and we can see now after the election, it was right. all Right, and you said earlier more, that, that, but, that there, um, there was no pushback. So if you're being told something by the party you yeah. belong to, by the way, I, <laughs> I saw the statistic before the 2020 election. It's mind-blowing. More people get divorced than change political party. And it's this like 20% of something people mm-hmm. of people change political party over the course of their mm-hmm. lifetime. It's rare. So it's so I'm I think so. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said I'm one of them, but as as many as many Democrats who who don't think that I'm a maybe as loyal as I can. They're like, but it took what happened to you for you to see the light. I'm like, okay, fair, but well, I'm here now. That's so different. I'm and, ready to you work. Know, <laughs> it, it is amazing though, how the evidence in front of us is still not enough because the party identi- party identification mm-hmm. is so strong. You said this yeah. earlier. It's like people have mm-hmm. to give up an entire belief system, but for you guys, it was so mm-hmm. personal that, you know, there you are, Alex, basically protecting and defending the Constitution, as your oath told you you should, and standing up for your country and and not, you know, not trying to be mean, which is a sure, I'm sure how Donald would have put it, but to just report wrongdoing as if that and suddenly that's a bad thing so uh because it's not it's not that yeah. it, as if that yeah, there was there was a thing. question about it there was no question about it at all and then it gets personal and how i i've been curious i i mean i i read your book but i maybe one or two people listening haven't and those one or two people who haven't you must it's seriously it's brilliant it's so well written and it is such what I what I didn't expect was from it um, was the immigrant story, um, and which is one of the main reasons I think people should read it because it just reminds us that this that's what this country is all about, or it's what this country is supposed to be about. So I found that stuff, part of it really moving, um, but. I, I wonder, and I want people listening to hear from you, how, how did that 
the 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 way that that the attacks on you got so personal. I mean, it was it was. Um, yeah. I mean, again, it's not outside of my experience, obviously, yeah. but it was because yeah. you weren't you weren't there as a private citizen. You were there in the context of your job, right? And um, even I, at, at sure. a vast remove from what was going on, was so disturbed and concerned and worried for you because it got personal and in a way that is just, yeah. uh, it was bizarre, quite honestly. So um, I'm wondering like how that changed the trajectory think, of your life or, or how it changed the way you think about this country, if it oh, did. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I don't know if it really changed the way I think about this country. I mean, I guess- I, Actually, I'm sorry, know. I misspoke. Uh, not this country, but what's going on in this country. Yeah. I'd say that uh, it's interesting. I knew um, what kind of administration I was working for, and I knew that uh, Trump was, uh, you know, notoriously vindictive, and that there would be consequences for for testifying, what mm-hmm. truth or or not. Um, what I didn't necessarily recognize was, and I also recognize that this impeachment and historical event, I just didn't quite have the context to recognize. You know how much attention that would garner, and um, you know that it would thrust my me and, and the family into kind of into the eye of the storm, and that I'd, I'd be a, a topic of discussion for for millions of Americans. I mean, I kind of understood the intellectual component of it. I understood my firsthand experience with the Trump administration, but I didn't. You know, I couldn't fathom this idea of the fact that I'd be lauded by by some, and you know, and uh, have millions mm-hmm. of detractors. That was something that's kind of hard to, to for somebody out of the um, public eye to uh, recognize or, or see, see that. And coming. your attorneys tried to tell you, "Oh, don't worry, you're just going to be a fact witness. <laughs> no, yeah, it's going to be very basic. It'll be like, it'll be, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fine. It won't be a big deal. You Maybe know, you just know. a short testimony, like yeah. three or four hours. So it's it'll probably be short be testimony. Okay. Then we found out they actually didn't believe this at all, but they were just trying to make him calm. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so. So that part is, but at the same time, I tend to not like take th- take things personally, unless it's Rachel, then I take it very personally. But I, in general, I I don't th- take things uh, personally. I mean, like, you know, how am I supposed to take a tweet from somebody like a country away um, criticizing me? Never never met me or anything like that. I, it's not a big deal. I could shrug that off. We've both been through much much more challenging. Uh, 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 experiences in our lives. I, I've served in combat. I've served in in, in Russia for three years uh, when we had a very very uh, shaky relationship, and you know the sec- security services were monitoring everything I was doing. So uh, it was not something that really still doesn't bother me that much. If I were to look at that, it's just kind of to, to generally t- uh, to take a, the temperature of where things are. Uh, and and kind of an analytical approach rather than uh, something that I, I take personally, and I focus on the I tend to focus on the positive. We received a lot of support. Uh, we receive a lot of support to this day. Uh, people provide uh, you know uh, reached out, and we received thousands of pieces of mail. And the biggest challenge, I think, uh, the big, biggest consequence is uh, the uncertainty. I mean, yes, there was was the acute phase where there were threats. And we were, we were definitely more alert for uh, what I referred to as force protection mm-hmm. issues and stuff like that. Um, so, and Rachel was definitely very kind of anxious about it, and it was it was somewhat nerve wracking. Uh, but 
it's the uh, uncertainty of you know where we are now a couple of years on i'm going to finish up my degree and still have some big decisions to make about what i want to do next as opposed to uh, the certainty i had of uh, a, a really successful military career and what i was where i was likely to go and what i was likely to do yeah and do you do you regret it or do you see it as an opportunity i can't i don't regret it uh, i mean every there's a These are complex events, and I did mm-hmm. what I thought was right uh, at the time. By the way, I mean, my two cents, I you, you no, did what was right. Yeah, I appreciate that. But I, I did what I, what I uh, thought was right, and um, I was prepared to deal with the consequences mm-hmm. back then without even necessarily recognizing all, what all those were. Uh, I wasn't going to, to have to um, rationalize my actions or try to explain to my daughter, you know, as she gets older – about what role I played and how I chose to protect myself as opposed to, uh, um, you know, fulfill my obligations as, as an officer, um, as a, uh, a senior official in the white house, whatever the case might be. And, uh, I, I'm just, I dealt with the consequence of that, um, which was the end of a military career and a really kind of concerted effort to, to, uh, pave a new path for, for the, myself and my family, um, and I guess I also could take some pride in the fact that I know exactly that the moment that I made a difference, uh, and that's hard to pinpoint over the course of a career. Uh, many officers have impacts on, you know, a soldier's lives, many soldier's lives, but, uh, you know, if, if the purpose of, uh, of the military is to defend the nation, I know exactly when I did that. And I, I can take pride in that. Yeah, and that is kind of a gift, right? Because um, it's rare that people can pinpoint that moment, and it, it did make an enormous difference. Uh, so, and it, it did certainly to anybody paying attention with an open mind. Um, so that, and, and yeah, nobody can take that from you, and nobody can take that from us. Um, and along with uh, everything that's come since, which, you know, there, obviously I could have had each of you on separately, and I'd, I'd still like to. The reason I asked both of you to come on today, though, <laughs> I mean, there are many reasons, but one of the main reasons is because out of what happened, um, you have become publicly like this, the, these, uh, an incredible partnership, right? And um, a, a real positive force as a team. Um, you know, separately, but also together. And, and that, I don't think that happens that often either, uh, that people are able to go through um, something as stressful and, and traumatic, I'm sure, as what you did and pick up and not just kind of move on, but decide that you are going to stake out this territory and continue to want to make a difference, um, which you absolutely are. So, Mary, I think it's it's funny to say, and I apologize for interrupting you, but you know it's interesting that the the president thought he was going to intimidate me uh, or uh, the president's you know uh, supporters and proxies thought that they were going to intimidate the family. They didn't do that. What they did was basically, you know, uh, they they've they've uh, 
developed a force to right. be reckoned Yeah, with. it's kind of galvanizing, isn't it? Um, I, I'm always amused yeah. when people ask me, aren't you afraid like, of him? <laughs> kidding me? He's like the weakest person on the planet. Yeah. No, of course I'm not afraid of him. Paper tiger. Um, and yeah, I, I'm sure that Donald yeah. didn't realize how, how badly he miscalculated when he came for you. <laughs> but thankfully did but I mean, you know, he's been successful with a lot of people, certainly silenced a lot of people. But you know what, Rachel, um, I th- the way I see it, and I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong because there are shockingly weaker people than he is, but the people who seem to be swayed or the people who seem to be afraid are are not the people speaking truth to power. Like, it's really, it's much easier to do mm-hmm. when you, you're speaking the truth, when you are on the right side of things. It's much harder to do that when... You know, you're somebody who's putting your own self-interest above the countries or your party's self-interest above the countries. So I, I think I think that's that's a big difference, too. Um, you know, you guys are on the right side of history and you know what's at stake. So. Yeah, I think, you know, that's the re- that's the motivation for telling the story, for continuing to speak out and continuing to be in the public eye of. It's also a confluence of just, you know, living in countries where people didn't have the ability, you know, right. to, to speak out. I li- we lived in Russia when they, you know, when they invaded Crimea. And, um, you know, I worked at a school and my colleagues, my Russian colleagues, didn't feel comfortable even in the school, you know, discussing current events. And whether that was a, a real fear or that was just, um, you know, the... Um, I don't know. What, what would you call it? Like, uh, like the perception. I mean, it's a threat that I guess made them not. Yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't really what the yeah. outcome is the same. They were afraid to say anything critical about the Kremlin or, you know, about Russian activities so or their government's activities, I should say. So um, I never want to live in a country like that. I never want to be part of that. So speaking out and telling our story and like, hey, we really are regular people. I mean, you know, like we're we're boring. We're I think you you're know, special. <laughs> you know, we're we're just like we're normal. We still you know, I mean all our neighbors would tell you that, our friends would tell you that. And and so I, I wanna highlight that part of who we are to say like there was nothing unique about us. It's just that there was a moment when my husband made a choice and this is how we were attacked and it could be you next time. And I know to a lot of people that seems really far away, but I also know that our story and sharing our personal story has resonated with people and they have seen that. So again, if it, if it's just a few people, then so be it. And, you know, in speaking out, I mean, I think life changes all the time. It gives you, you know, new possibilities and, opportunities and this is where you know the work that we're doing now is where we feel like we can you know kind of make the biggest difference and will we do it forever I don't know but it's an all hands on deck type situation and frankly I meet people all the time um again especially through my podcast who find a way to be involved in their communities um you know even part-time after, you know, after their work or instead of their work sometimes to the detriment and, you know, on weekends and they, they see a need and they make a difference. And it's incredibly inspiring because I see myself in them, just regular people who decide to go do something and to really Mm -hmm. plug in. And I can do that 
on a bigger level and amplify those voices, but to say like, hey, you can do this too. This doesn't have to be someone else making the decision. And we need everyone to come in here and to work for democracy. And it's possible. It is. And I, I would say that, um, one, I don't, I don't find you boring at all. Um, but uh, the <laughs> uh, only other point of disagreement is that I, well, maybe it's not, not unique, but your response to what happened was rare, I think and um, courageous and very much appreciated. And even though I could talk to you guys forever and I like, I want to know about Alex's dissertation and I want to know what's going on with the podcast, <laughs> we probably have to wrap up at some point. So um, sure. because of, I, I kind of feel like, uh, I don't know, I was really excited that we were, we were, the three of us were involved in the Virginia gubernatorial election because it, it uh, I don't know, made me feel like I kind of knew you, which I didn't, but now I kind of feel like I yeah. do. Um, now so we do. Yeah, I, yeah. I hope, I, well, I think you said you're definitely going to continue um, trying to educate people and help them understand the crisis. Uh, like I'm, I'm at this point where everybody should be a one-issue voter. You're voting for democracy or you're not, Right. Absolutely. So the problem, mm -hmm. though, is mm -hmm. that our, our election systems are increasingly distrust, uh, distrusted, and that reaction is increasingly polarized, which is exactly what the right wants. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, yes, the absolutely. Yeah, it, it, they still have the <laughs> RNC's emails, by the way. Um, so uh, allegedly, I don't know. Um, the problem, <laughs> one of the problems is that that increases the difficulty of politicians on one party reaching people, voters on, in the other party. So given the work uh, you've done and are going to continue to do, what do you think, what if anything can we do to win back the trust of um, people who are really untrusting right now about election results because of the lies they've been been fed that it's illegitimate or there was voter fraud or whatever. Um, and what do you think would most make a difference or who do you think would most make a difference in turning things around so that we don't lose in November, which would be tragic? I think there's something to be said for, you know, influencing and re reaching the influencers to uh, that'll have some sort of effect, although I think there, there'll be still, you know, people, once people lose trust, uh, it's hard, really hard to kind of regain it. There could be something done with regards to like a really concerted effort around transparency on how these things are done. Uh, you know, a, um, a campaign by the, the, the U.S. government to kind of lay out to the American public how our election system works in, in partnership with, let's say, PBS or, and and some of the major networks might might uh, help a little bit uh, to add a little clarity. And then you get the political actors that are running to play to, to kind of accept that their elections are run fairly and then accept the outcomes. You do that beforehand because they they understand you know they they say they buy into the mm -hmm. fact that it's transparent, uh, but sometimes that's not politically expedient to right. do that. So that's a that's a, a difficult thing to do. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I one of the people that I um, talked to, one of the first people I talked to on my podcast, she was a, a young um, 
a young woman, a college student, I think at the time, and started uh, registering voters in Arizona. And in fact, her her organization registered voters in uh, Georgia for the Senate race. But, you know, their goal was small at first. It was to defeat Mm -hmm. Joe Arpaia. And they didn't the first time, but they kept working. They had lots of dreamers who were registering Hmm. voters and going around. They wore T-shirts. They registered voters. They talked to people. People who said, I don't think my vote will count. And they just said, but you have to vote. You have to try. So I think on a community basis, that's where we really change minds. Because the top-down approach is not going to work. We need a grassroots approach of neighbors talking to neighbors and encouraging people to vote, talking about these issues. It's hard. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. But, you know... We still have to do it, and you have to find the common ground. Um, you have to find that place where you have in common, whether it's your children or community or, you know, you live in the same neighborhood. I mean, that's a commonality as well. So everyone wants the same basic things. I mean, we've lived all over the world and traveled, and you know, I mean, everyone really wants the same basic things in life, but they maybe don't know mm-hmm. how to go about it or how to you know, how to get there. And they have, you know, divergent views. But if we keep talking, that is a better way than closing the door. So don't be abused. Don't, you know, if you're really not going to change someone's mind, like move on to someone else. Because, I mean, you you have to, you know, be, you have to be a good steward of your time and resources. But um, I do think until we start talking to each other, and I'm, I'm talking to myself here as much as anyone else. Um, we, we're only going to fix this from the ground up. And that means it starts right. with us. I could not have said it better. Um, and if, if Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin can go door to door registering voters, so can we. Uh, <laughs> I'm already registered, but I'd love for them to come to my door. <laughs> me too. Super fun. <laughs> um, Rachel Vindman, Alex Vindman, this has been so... I don't know. I don't even know how to say it. It's been such a pleasure. It's been an honor. It's been so wonderful to hear from you directly, uh, your thoughts about, you know, how we got here, where we're going, what we can do. Because honestly, I think, you know, you, you model that you help people see that it's, there are ways to make a difference. There are ways to turn this thing around and, um, we need, we need more people like you out there, honestly. So I, I so appreciate you being here. Definitely check out the suburban women problem. It's a great podcast. And I mean, I know for me in particular, like I am, I don't understand suburbia, even though I lived in suburbia for 25 <laughs> years, I'm a city kid, you know? <laughs> so We have a lot of urban listeners I'm, too, actually. I've yes. Those of us who are just completely mystified who, yeah, by the yes. whole thing. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if we just demystify it, but I think what we see is that we're actually married. Yes. We want the same things. People want the same things. You know, I mean, it's, it's, we, we polarize people. Right. People exactly. But, things. you know, but there are, there, suburbia can be complicated too. That's all. That's right. That's, yeah, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, it's true. And yes, yeah. definitely, if you haven't already, please read Alex's book, Here Right Matters, an American story. It is, it's beautifully written. Also, uh, in addition to being a great necessary book, I think. So thank you both so much. And um, I look forward to having on separately together again um, in the future. And thank you. Thank you for all of the amazing work you do. Thank Thank you, you. Mary. And you as well. 
And now we're at one of my favorite parts of the show, uh, which is answering your questions. Um, please, if you have anything you want to ask me, just send an email to all one word, the Mary Trump show at politicon.com, and I will get to as many of them as I can. From Karen in Washington, D.C., what do you think are the chances of achieving D.C. statehood in our lifetime, and what would it take to move the needle on voter suppression in the United States' last landlocked colony? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't understand why D.C. wasn't made a state a long time ago, um, considering it has a bigger population than at least four or five other states I can think of, including Wyoming. Um, well, I think the, the obvious reason that it hasn't happened is because it would be to the Republicans' disadvantage. Uh, it would, you know, as you know, D.C. is overwhelmingly Democratic, and it would give the Democrats two more senators, which <laughs> sounds like paradise right about now. Um, but it would, you know, it would require the Democrats having a bigger majority uh, in the Senate, which also requires that, you know, as I said earlier, we vote in such massive numbers that we can overcome the um, structural disadvantages, um, but also, you know, get gain gain more power. That's that's what we need. Dem uh, Republicans are has have proven themselves to be wildly anti-democratic. They are not going to help us out here. They do not care that um, a democratic-leaning city uh, is taxed without representation. So um, that's why we all need to vote. This one is from Good Trouble. How much of this vaccine refusal is just clueless Facebook meta moms who were just far enough down the rabbit hole to absolve themselves of responsibility for becoming their own two-armed super spreaders? Sure that the last meme they read is the truth because it sounds just like everything else they've been pointed to for the last year. I think a lot of it is, quite honestly, because what we need to remember is that these people are being lied to, have consistently been lied to um, by their leaders. You know, they voted for the people who are telling them that it's a hoax or that the vaccines are dangerous. Um, I think I think the vaccine refusers kind of come in two different groups. And I mean, they're equally dangerous. I just think some of them are less culpable. The people who refuse the vaccine because they're told that it was developed too quickly and it's not reliable are also being told to take ivermectin and drink bleach. So it's not that they don't think COVID is an actual thing. It's that they don't trust the current government not to poison them because that's what the last government basically set them up for. Um, and then there are the just the COVID deniers, which um, we keep hearing about, you know, those, uh, those right-wing radio hosts and pastors of megachurches who have put who knows how many people at risk by lying about COVID. Uh, you know, a lot of them seem to be dying of COVID. So... Um, I think, though, it, it comes down to being deceived by the Republican Party and Republican politicians, and it 
comes down to the fact that the Republican Party has become a party of anti-science, which is quite mind-numbing, and have politicized something that has no business being politicized. From Joshua, is there a background clearance check for elected officials? As far as I understand it, there is a background clearance check for every single person in government except the president of the United States, which seems insane to me. I mean, look what happened. So I, I kind of hope that somebody does something about that. Uh, from Robert, Amy Goodman had Noam Chomsky on last week, and he seems to want to coin the term denialist party for the GOP. I think it's fine, but that could get spun around easily to Democratic Party, too. You seem to have a descriptive, accurate vocabulary. What banter-slinging name do you suggest should be used for the GOP this 2022 as these hearings open up? Um, I said at the top of the show, the Republicans are fascists. Uh, they use propaganda. They rely on propaganda networks like Fox, OAN, and Newsmax. Uh, they advocate for violence or allow it. And um, they are perfectly comfortable uh, overthrowing <laughs> the legitimate government of the United States in order to gain permanent minority power. So I think fascist, autocrat, anti-democratic, counter-majoritarian, those are all quite accurate descriptions that cannot be used against the Democrats. From Rick, uh, the failures to humanity all stem from the mon monetary system, which literally gets everything wrong. We need to implement the solution shown in Star Trek for over 50 years, which has always been a resource-based economy. What do you think? I totally agree. We need to be like Starfleet here. Um, the extent to which money matters has become terrifying. Uh, it's just been highlighted and exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, the income gap is mind-boggling. You've got people like Bezos and um, Zuckerberg and the Tesla guy making obscene amounts of money, not paying taxes on them, while uh, Republican senators apparently think that... Uh, we shouldn't raise the minimum wage from $9.75, which is where it's been since, I think, the 80s. So um, when we are talking about the fact that the Build Back Better bill, which would lift millions of children out of poverty, which would rebuild our infrastructure, which is in desperate need of being rebuilt, um, and on and on. I mean, there are so many amazing things in the Build Back Better bill. When we're talking about the fact that it's, quote unquote, too expensive, um, we've taken a very wrong turn, especially when we know that the $868 billion annual defense budget um, passed through without, without a peep from anybody. So, yeah, let's be like Starfleet. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Mary Trump Show with me, Mary Trump, and some of my favorite people at the intersection of politics, activism, and culture. Please send your questions to me for the next week's show at 
all one word, the Mary Trump show at politicon.com, or look for the address in the show notes. I'd really love to hear from you. Please also follow the Mary Trump show on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen and definitely give us a five-star review because it really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much. See you next week.